When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. Summertime and the living is easy. Here we are. Episode three. Cheerful existential summer. Yeah. Cheerful summer existential. I'm excited about this because it's something I think is at the heart of human existence. If you want to define what separates us as human beings, our relationship with music has to be one of those things. And we're talking to one of my favourite music writers. He used to write for The Word magazine, which 10 or 15 years ago, I loved it as much as I loved magazines like Smash Hits when I was a kid. It was like, almost like Smash Hits for grown-ups. And she has subsequently gone on to do great interview pieces and music reviews, and uh, you'll often see her stuff on The Guardian. And she's written a fantastic book. It's called The Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives. She's Jude Rogers. And it's a great conversation. Yeah, it really is. And music is my late in life discovery, Jeff, isn't it? I know. I know. You know, you, you, as you've been telling us, you had your Glastone moment, you had your Sam, Sam Fender moment, you had a little dance with Taylor Swift. I've got an ABBA Voyage thing coming up. Yeah. On the dance floor, no less. What costume do you think I should go in? All white. I can't think which video. Is that the Waterloo costume, isn't it? Yeah, I was also thinking there's a, there's a very fetching unitard Bjorn wears in one of their videos. Maybe something like that could look good on you. What is a unitard? Full body leotard sort of thing. Is that like a mankini? <laughs> I think it's it leaves a little more to the imagination. It's a less revealing version of the mankini. Yes, yeah. I mean, do you think I, I would get attention if I went there, actually, went in that? I, th- I think you'll get attention anyway, and you would get a very different kind of attention if you went to it. <laughs> Give it a go. There's not anything particularly ABBA-related I should go in. I didn't go in any ABBA-themed clothing when, when we went, but I, I wasn't as brave as you. I, I had a seat. I, I thought, at my age, I don't know if I can stand for the full hour and 20 minutes or whatever it is. In the time, I, I mean, it's worth saying about this, that you were, as always, incredibly helpful. It was my wife texting you saying, should we go and sit down? Should we go to the dance floor? We then havered around. Anyway, we were buying returns and the returns of the seats went. 
so the decision was made for us. <laughs> so uh-huh. we ended up on the dance floor. It's meant to be. Exactly. The other thing about Jude Rogers, which we cover in the interview, is she did interview me for GQ. She did. About my book. I spoke to her on background about you. Yeah. Off the record. Yeah. Uh, and her book is really nice and very summary. It is very summary. It's, it's a memoir. There's some sadness in it, but there's a lot of the joy of music. But also she talked to a lot of experts, neuroscientists, psychologists and so on, to, to try and dig a bit deeper into what our relationship is as human beings with music. And it's a really good read. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're delighted to be talking to writer Jude Rogers about her new book, The Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives. I can vouch for this personally because it is the book I took on holiday with me uh, when I finally got some time for leisure reading this year. It was my number one choice. It's structured around 12 songs that each tells us something about the power music has on us. And, and importantly, it is a memoir. Jude traces her life through music and shows us how tightly bound up songs can be with memory and shaping formative moments in our lives. And here she is, Jude Rogers. Hello. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Ed. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm delighted. Hello, Jude. You haven't actually mentioned, Jeff, that Jude is also an interviewer. <laughs> this is this is true. Jude interviewed Ed for, was it GQ magazine, Jude? It was, yeah. I got a text message sounding you out. Yeah, you did. And basically, <laughs> let me just say, this title of this uh, episode, Jude, is going to be Jude versus Ed, the rematch. <laughs> No, you and Jude, you were very nice to be interviewed by you. What, what, what was Jude's technique like as an interviewer, Ed? How oh, did God. she wheedle stuff out Far of you? Far too good. I would say she was to sort of lull you into a full sense of security. <laughs> <laughs> Pretend to be your friend, then pounce. Oh, well, it was hard, Ed, because you're so lovely, and I'm thinking I've got to be Aww. an objective person. It was the first big profile I'd done for GQ. You know, it's 3,000 words, and I think they wanted me to be a bit more mean, but I couldn't be because you were just too nice. And uh, we had a lovely walk on um, Hampstead Heath. We did. We did. We, we did. saw your no, pond. Was, uh, yeah, my pond, as we call it. My pond. <laughs> I think this is becoming too much about me, even for me, Jeff. So maybe should we go back to Jude? <laughs> yeah. Jude, you, you and I are both, we have a, quite a similar relationship to mm. music in, in that it occupies a large space in our lives. And I, th- I think that hasn't always been true for Ed. He's, he's somewhat of a late bloomer. Oh, it's all about me again. There's a recent awakening. But I, I wondered if just to start, you had any thoughts on why music looms so large for some of us, less so mm. for others, and, and what we could do to nudge Ed <laughs> into becoming more like one of us. One of us. <laughs> Well, I wonder if it's what we're surrounded by when we're little, for starters, really. You know, I don't know, Ed, if your parents played music at home or you had that. But, you know, I, I'm from your classic South Walian family. Chapel, pub, <laughs> choir. Um, so, you know, my mum and dad, my mum and stepdad are chapel organists to this day. So there was always music at home, but it was generally more classical or folk music, that kind of thing. My grandparents also always had the radio on, so it was just sort of background. My first memory is from their house, hearing Super Trooper by ABBA and my grandma and I singing along to it, but also watching off Saturday morning kids' TV, which was just awash with fantastic pop stars in the 80s when I was a kid. So I think there's something quite formative about it. If it gets you that young, then you're gone. Reading the book, I felt like that we grew up in a time where there weren't very many TV or radio channels. Mm. So what came out was kind of for everyone. And 
also the kind of odd selection of people you would see performing on Top of the Pops, it kind of exposed us to a lot. I think we, it was a lucky time, but I don't know. Do you feel like you can? a lot of that just went over your head, Ed? I'm thinking about this. You see, my parents did play some music. It was sort of jazz, you know, Ella Fitzgerald, Paul Robeson. Actually, also, my mother really likes Edith Piaf. My parents was an older generation, so they weren't a mm. pop music generation. So I wonder whether that was part of it. Because my father was actually quite musical and could sing in tune and everything, something I definitely can't do. So anyway, look, I'm sort of living my life in the kind of reverse order, which is my, I'm living my 50s in my 20s. I'm now becoming sort of really passionate about music. It was Taylor Swift, now it's Sam Fender. Exactly. Now, look, notwithstanding the fact that Jeff has kind of taken me down a peg or two, in terms of my musical knowledge, I, I so enjoyed the book, Jude, and I found it incredibly moving. And, it, and it, it's structured around 12 songs. And, and the first of those tells the story of you aged five and what ended up heartbreakingly being the, the last time you said goodbye to your dad. Was it hard to write such a personal account Yes, it was. He was going to have a hip operation. He had ankylosing spondylitis and, he was, and this operation would help him be able to play with me and my, my one-year-old brother. Um, and he didn't get through the operation, you know, which wasn't meant to happen. So it obviously is freighted with such emotion. And, you know, it was hard to write about that in some respects, but also quite lovely, you know, um, trying to remember him and his love of music and how that's come through to me. But it's funny, I've over the years, I've written some things about him in you know articles. I wrote a piece for Word magazine, which is the music magazine, long gone now, sadly, that I used to work for, about how sort of male pop stars took his place in some ways, or I looked to them for some sort of, I don't know, um, delight or pleasure when I was growing up. And that was the start of what became this book. There's, I write about adamant in that for example, and there's a chapter titled Prince Charming and Adam the Ants. It's sort of cheating because it is Prince Charming plus Freedom by Wham, <laughs> which um, it was a song that, oh, God, it's still someone, one of my favourite songs. I absolutely love it. I felt so validated by that because I think it's even thought of by some snobby people as a, a lesser Wham song, and I've always really loved it. Me too. I get really angry about that. Yeah, and then I saw that in your book and it made me uh, finally feel uh, vindicated. Yeah. No, I wanted to be very honest and about the songs that I've loved. You know, it's funny. When I, I did a launch event for my book and I mentioned Freedom by Wham and some people laughed and I just took them up on it. <laughs> you know, it's, Wham were brilliant. They were fantastic in a way that I think people, some people are quite surprised that, you know, I'm a music journalist and I... I like ABBA and Wham and Talk Talk and Kate Bush. You know, it's, um, but you know, that's what most people like. You know, I, I do not like the concept of the guilty pleasure at all. Music is pleasure, whatever form it comes in, whether it be, I don't know, Benjamin Britten's War Requiem or something by Nena Cherry. But isn't it interesting this? You know, I, for my Desert Island Discs, chose Angels by Robbie Williams. Yes. And the reason I chose it is because... Justine and I were dating. Oh, I think we'd first started going out with each other and we went to the Live 8 concert and Robbie Williams played Angels brilliantly um, with like a whole sing-along. And so it meant a lot to me mm. for that reason. And I got, you know, I got absolutely done over for sort of, you know, picking Angels. But that says more about the way people view politicians yeah. because I think people probably thought you'd been told by the results of a focus group yeah. to pick it or you like it's like Gordon Brown mentioning the Arctic monkeys yeah maybe no there's true. a story behind it there's a connection behind it it's absolutely valid you know um chapter two of my book is 
the version of Only You by the Flying Pickets. Yeah, exactly. Stop singing it, I'll stop crying. (laughs) No, not really. People cry a lot when I sing, dude, actually, but not not in a good way. Uh. (laughs) No, but, um, you know, that is one of the most important songs in my life. And you tell that to, you know, any, well, certain music snobs, and they'd be like, oh, why would you write a chapter on that? It's because it's the last song I remember sharing with my dad. And I do love it. And when I think of music, I think of our conversation at the front door when he's going to hospital. Our love of music is about the resonances and the relationships, the connections, you know, whether that be a lot of people singing a song together in a field or, you know, a memory of something that my dad and I shared. And, you know, the song that my dad heard before he died is the song that I can just put on Spotify now and listen to. It's the same thing. And the way that music can carry all these memories and stories, it's just so powerful. And it's powerful for so many people because our brains are wired that way. Part of what's lovely about the book is that obviously that is such a key memory for you and that moment underpins a a lot of what comes afterwards. But you quite reasonably want to scrutinise your own memory because memories Mm. are unreliable and it's possible that you were making sense of your life and your subsequent passion for music and career in music writing by placing undue emphasis or remembering that moment wrongly because we didn't know you were saying goodbye to your dad in that way. No. And as I work through the book, you know, I I sort of, I don't leave my dad behind. Maybe I do in some ways, um, but I also go forward you know, with him sort of behind me, you know, um, and find my own music and my own um, songs that mean things to me that are completely disconnected with my relationship with him. In the book, you don't just talk about your own memories, but you also went off and talked to others to think about the science of all this. Mm. Do you want to say something about that and what, what, what you learned most about it, what surprised you? Yeah, it's funny. People said, oh, you could have just written you know, a book about your own life. And I thought, no, I'm, you know, I'm a journalist. I want to dig into why does this stuff happen? Mm-hmm. So I just started reading around. I did the early stuff, actually, when I was pregnant with my son some years ago, now 2013. That was the thing I think that set me off. It was finding out how babies in the womb can remember music. I know that's something that's talked about a lot. You know, people put headphones on their babies and play them music. You know, this whole idea of taking your kids to music classes when they're young, you know, they become really clever. But um, there was a study in 2013 that proved that babies in the womb could remember a very specific version of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And it proved that in the womb, you can form memories from specifically music as opposed to sounds. And I just thought that was fascinating. Rather than just digging through academic papers and stuff like that. You know, I'm not an academic, I'm a journalist. I decided to ring and go and do proper interviews with these people. And I and what really fascinated me is how many of them wanted to communicate their joy in finding out about how the brain processes music. I really love finding out how our identity and music is very connected in the more evolved part of our brain. I thought that was really interesting. You know, if you hear a sound, you might think you just react to it in a very animalistic fight or flight way. But when we remember particular songs, all those connections are firing in the very evolved part of our brain at the front of our brains. And I loved finding out about that. And I wanted to communicate that stuff in sentences that were straightforward and accessible and didn't get lost in scientific jargon. Sometimes, especially I think with girls and young women, an obsession with pop can be dismissed as a silly and hysterical and a, and a frippery. And I think you write so well 
both from a personal point of view and then going and finding out what lies underneath from scientists and psychologists about what pop stars that you have loved, like Adam Ant or Nena Cherry, were able to do for us. So can you talk a little bit more about the role that these stars can occupy in people's lives? There's loads of interesting stuff about how a pop star can become a focus of our affections because when we're teens, there's a part of our brain that's developing to make us try and seek new faces of people. And it doesn't have to be a real person. It can be a poster on the wall. It can be, as it was for me, Michael Stipe on um, a, vi- a pop video. I was like, oh, who is this man? Speaking personally, seeing Nena Cherry on Top of the Pops, you know, this is late 88. I'm 10 and a half. Here's a woman who her mum was a Swedish artist. Her uh, dad by birth is an African musician. Her stepdad is Don Cherry, the jazz trumpeter. She has lived in New York and been in the slits, this punk band. She's done all this cool stuff. But I just found something in her as this white girl from Swansea who, you know, was a bit of a swat. And suddenly there's this woman rapping and dancing and she was heavily pregnant and just saying, oh, here's somebody who is suggesting other ways of being. And it was just really powerful. And you start to piece together your own small p politics. Yes. Through moments like that. Definitely, definitely. You know, I see it with children even now. There's a sort of expectation around young girls to behave in a certain way still. I know it's changed a lot since I was a kid. But pop music and pop people can give you different options, different ways for your imagination to be occupied. And also being a female music journalist, I didn't want to paint myself into an obvious corner. But these are all people who did quite big things for me. You know, I mentioned the band Kraftwerk, who I loved in my late teens. And that was quite unusual for me because I was your proper Britpop indie girl, really, before I loved them. Um, so these bands have slightly challenged me or artists that pushed me into into different places. I don't just speak to scientists about this. I speak to people who are experts in fandom. I look at anthropology. I look at sociology to try and track how all these things are happening. The thing I've really loved about the response to the book is I've had... Oh, there's one, there's one week I got an email from a 73-year-old chorister in Swansea. Um, and he didn't know much of the music, but he'd really responded to it. And I think it was the same day I got a message from Cosi Fanny Tutti, from the, who was in the band Throbbing Gristle and is an experimental artist who's done very provocative, explicit work. I thought, fantastic, I've got this guy and I've got this woman. I want people to respond to this with their own set of references. Um, I, but, you know, it's called The Sound of Being Human because I think it is just something intrinsically in us, for so many of us. In the last chapter, I talk about how during um, the pandemic, I had a a month or so where just music wasn't giving me any comfort at all. This was just after I'd sent off my proposal for my book. So I was slightly nervous. And then I read about this condition called musical anhedonia, where there are some people who don't respond to music at all. Um, 5% because of the the way their brains are wired. Um, But it's something you're either born with or you get because of a brain injury. I thought that means that 95% of people don't have musical anhedonia. 95% of people, their brains react to music in this way. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. 
Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You talk very movingly about your relationship with your dad in the book. You, you've got a son yourself. Are you passing on... <laughs> As they say on Radio 4, your inheritance track yes. <laughs> to him. I'm looking for some tips here. How do you? Um, how are you bringing up your son to give give him the love of music that you, you've got? Well, um, you know, having a child really did inspire the book as well. Seeing how he reacted to music when he was very little, you know, just moving his bum in time to the music on the radio or something. You may guess, given I'm a music journalist, I desperately want to influence his music taste. <laughs> I've played him lots of stuff from when I was a kid. He loves Wham, I'm pleased to report. But he's also liking his own stuff. He loves Push It by Salt and Pepper, which I love, <laughs> um, even though there are some rude words in it. He loves Rock Set by Dr. Feelgood, which is a, not a strange one. And obviously I'll play him stuff that I want him to listen to. But I think you can't force things on kids, sadly. But his yeah, his favourite song is Bad Habits by Ed Sheeran, especially the, the one, the version with Bring Me the Horizon that was on the Brits that he heard somewhere. And I think he's going to be proper metal or something like that, which is slightly terrifying. Not that there's anything wrong with liking that. That's great. A lot of my good friends in music journalism are metalheads. I'm just thinking my ears probably won't be able to take, you know, the volume. I think just being self-critical, I think part of the problem in our household is that when Justine and I sort of start wanging on about when we first heard this, this, that (laughs) and the other, do you remember this? And it's like, you know, it'd be like my parents saying, you know, do you remember in the 1950s? Yeah. And I'd have been like, sorry, I don't really, I'm not really that bothered about what happened in the 19, when you you know listen to this in the 19, so, so I think it's partly giving it timelessness, if you know what I mean. But that that's changed. I mean, it gets overstated, but we grew up in an era where the, the new was what was available to us if you went to a record shop by and large, whereas now it's a huge buffet with everything in it. So era matters less. I agree. I think I make a different point, which is that if you accompany it with some story from that era, (laughs) it's a big turnoff. Yeah, I was kind of resistant to listening to my son's tastes, but we've started listening to Radio 1 in the car and I quite like it. You know, it's a bit loud, it's a bit noisy, (laughs) but I think it's quite natural for, for there to be that, you know, Division as well. How does your son feel about something which I'm sure you do a lot with him, which is to play him old Labour Party conference videos? 
<laughs> I'd love to do that. I mean, they're not so keen on that. Str- strangely enough, you know, here's a debate from the night from the 1987 Labour Party conference. I'm very interested in what you say about sort of teenagers' brains, and it's not just teenagers' brains, is it really? Well, there's a sort of freedom and a self-expression that comes from listening to music, which I think it's so important to sort of encourage your children into, isn't it? I mean, it's not just the taste for music we're talking about here, is it? No, it's sort of expanding your mind in different ways. And I think that's why I wanted to put in, you know, the moment where I realised that I quite liked, you know, the kind of club music that people I was scared of liked. Um, You know, I'm not a clubber. I don't really like crowds. You know, I'm a small music festival kind of person. I mean, obviously, I'm a big clubber, Jude. Well, of course. You know, know, you've done Glastonbury more than me. (laughs) Well, I'm a big big clubber, yeah, yeah, obviously. (laughs) Fabric. Um, <laughs> oh. I've never been to fabric. No, I have never been to fabric. <laughs> but but you're right about the science of dancing. Both Ed and I are missing the dancing gene, whereas you have it. But you see, I think we're being too. I think that's part of the problem here, Jeff, isn't it? Ed told me that he wanted to go to Abba Voyage, but he was scared that people would look at him Aww. and he wouldn't know what to do with his arms. I'll go with you, Ed. I'll go with you, and I'll hide you. I haven't been yet, which is ridiculous. Well, see, I I was self-conscious about it when I was younger, really self-conscious, even in school discos. You know, I write about the horror of comprehensive school discos when, you know, I'm too sexy comes on. <laughs> it's just the worst <laughs> when you're a 14-year-old girl. But I think because I started going to sort of indie discos, which may be more your world, Jeff. Yeah, I could dig, dig my hands in the pockets of my cardigan and I'd jump around to a Wonder Stuff record. Exactly. I think it's more encouraged today. I mean, you know, my son is shortly going to go to the Year 6 disco. I remember going to a disco when I was, I think I've told you this before, Jeff, haven't I? It must have been 16. I think I'd done my GCSEs. All I remember was my, I remember my white trousers, not good, and... um Caravan of Love. Oh, that's a great song. The House Martins. That, that seems like an unlikely track to play at a disco, though. Oh, near the end for a little, you know, little smooch. Near the end. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I left at that point. No one was smooching with me, Jude. Anyway, sorry, me I Me neither, you know, to be honest. I was kind of, uh, the school discos, I liked the songs that let me and my friends um, just jump around. So I liked, you know, um, Step On by the Happy Mondays or Come On Eileen. Um you know, um, when I was in primary school, I loved that because you just all got to hold hands and dance in and out. And it was just quite joyous. You know, I had a I had a launch party for my book that ended in a disco. It was so exciting. Where was our invite, Jude? Oh, I'm sorry. It was in Abergavenny. I thought it might be a bit far. All oh, right. OK. okay. Fair, <laughs> um, fair enough. What did it end with? Come on, Eileen. Oh, do you know, I've got no idea. I think I might have had a few right. glasses of wine by that point. But my friend Catherine, one of my oldest friends who's mentioned in the book, and I think I, I'm really pleased that there's so many of my friends just peppered through this book as well. She just played lots of songs from the book and other songs that we used to dance to as kids. And I think with friends, dancing is different, really, because you feel less less self-conscious, maybe. Well, why do we feel embarrassed about it? Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Why does it... It's like, you know, my angel's point. Why are we made to feel embarrassed, either about our choice of songs or our ability to dance? I mean, the number of people I know who are even more reticent than me to mm. go on the dance floor when they go to a party. It's interesting. Maybe that's my next book. <laughs> No, my husband's a great dancer, but he very rarely does it. He needs to have several pints and then he'll do it. Why is that, Jude? I wonder if it's something to do with probably something written about extensively in the field of anthropology. You know, a lot of dancing is 
you know, rituals and mating and is presenting yourself in a certain way. I think, you know, rave culture obviously changed that, but it did involve lots of, you know, illegal substances for most people as well to kind of loosen them up. But um, if you can loosen up, it's wonderful. The book is about what what music is to us and the role it occupies in our lives. And I was wondering how specific that is to where we are in culture and history. So obviously, what you know, what is more human than music? But if you think about the slice of the pie it occupies, is that dictated by the fact that we have lived through the, an era of recorded music? And would it occupy mm. that much space if it was 1750 and the only songs we knew were, I don't know, what would we do with the drunken sailor and <laughs> one man went to Moa? I mean, and some hymns. How dare you stereotype the 1750s like that? <laughs> The 1750s are, are coming back and are swinging sort of, and, and they're extremely angry with you. I think I mentioned songs from the 1750s in my book, don't I? I have the folk song chapter. Yeah, I think it's funny. Um, David Hepworth, the music writer and my old boss at Word magazine, asked me about this recently. He said, do you think it's because we've been played? You know, we can replay songs again and again and again and again. And I'm sure that's a big part of it. One of the neuroscientists in my book, Kath Loveday, talks about how a kind of song can make a sort of imprint in your memory. And so when you hear the song, that it, that, that is sort of replayed, but all the sensory information that's happening around the hearing of that song can be taken in with it. And obviously every time we hear a song and it might have different associations, it might change it a bit. You know, when I hear Only You by the Flying Pickets now, I will think of Ed Miliband singing it to me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think because it has been so much part of the background to our lives, hasn't it? When we go supermarket shopping, we have the hits of the day playing. You know, um, when we're walking on the street, there are cars playing music. It's a kind of art form that can, we can just sit and really listen intently to a piece of vinyl or a concert, but we can also just have it, you know, going on around us. You also carry music around in your head, don't you? It's sort of there without you noticing it. Um, But it's, just embedding yourself even more deeply into your brain. I think that's really why it's got that power. Mm. Uh, Can I ask about this sort of individual versus a collective experience? Because I was quite struck in your REM chapter that you talk about going to an REM concert Mm. and uh, feeling a sort of, one, you didn't love their new album, but secondly, you said that you're having to share the band with other people. And actually part of it is that you're irritated that the other people weren't listening to the music or just getting (laughs) drunk. Um, I mean, as somebody who's a sort of late convert to music festivals, I mean, the collective experience can transform it to a whole nother level, can't it? It can, yeah. It's funny, though, as a teenager, that was my first gig that wasn't a festival actually seeing R.E.M. And because they'd, they'd meant so much to me, you know, I'd poured over those lyrics, I'd filled notebooks with my interpretations or my, what I'd write, you know, what I'd say to Michael Stipe if I met him, which obviously eventually, many years later, I did as a journalist. <laughs> You know, I found it quite unsettling because he was, he wasn't a real person. He was this fantasy figure for me. He, I could mould him and shape him in any way I wanted to in my head. Um, But that same summer, I went to Glastonbury um, at the age of 17. But yeah, that experience like pulp in a collective in that festival. We were very lucky to be there that year. This was 1995, the height of Britpop, but also the height of the great dance music culture that was going on in Britain at that time. We were just seeing all these people that were having the same reaction as you to these songs and thinking, we're all sharing this moment. It's really powerful. 
pulp it really felt. And then this was 95, you know, and I've, I do talk about this quite a lot in relation to the politics of the time, but, you know, it felt like we were coming to the end of our whole lives. Well, I, I was one when Margaret Thatcher was elected. It did feel like there was change happening. And pulp out of all the bands were the ones I most closely associated with that because they were they were pretty political. You know, they were about the working classes being recognised and about privilege being wrong. <laughs> it's quite weird just thinking about writing about that in the book. And, you know, obviously I'm a journalist and I've interviewed all these people and that is weird. And I wanted to write about that as well, how weird that is. <laughs> I mean, obviously you have had a chance to interview your heroes, Jude. Yes, including you, uh, yes. <laughs> don't indulge him, don't uh, uh, indulge uh, him. Uh, um... Uh, which obviously is great for you, <laughs> and you also interviewed me. Um, now, Michael Stipe, Michael Stipe uh, is one of the people uh, that you did interview. Well, you had, I think you had 20 minutes with him. Yes. Yeah, 20 minutes is your classic um, for somebody of that level of fame. Um, and I, know, I get why, you know, somebody like him will have done so many interviews over the years. Um, the 20 minutes is more than enough. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I thought I haven't read about how music journalists themselves, you know, they're music fans. They become music journalists because they're fans. They want to meet their heroes. Um, so I wanted to be honest about how, you know, I'd barely slept the night before and I really wanted him to be my friend, <laughs> which is not very professional, but I wanted to, him to feel respected and I wanted him to be respectful. Um, and he could be quite a tricky character in interviews. I knew that. And thankfully we got on really well. But, you know, I write in the end of that chapter about how a couple of years later I go to a playback of the REM album Automatic for the People. And, um, you know, he doesn't remember who I am. Of course he doesn't. But, you know, that's, I know, I get that now as um, as an adult, but that would have devastated me as a teenager. Yeah. You sort of form these tight relationships with him. I mean, I think it is important to say for the listeners that you didn't have a sleepless night the night before interviewing me, Jude. Um, I, no, I was, in a, I was in a very comfy <laughs> Premier Inn in... Um, Archway, I think. Fair enough. Just for the record. <laughs> the bed's very comfy, yeah. <laughs> so I slept well. <laughs> How do you approach when when it's somebody you've idolised or has meant a lot to you in that way? So obviously it's not interviewing a politician, so you're not there to hold them to account. But sometimes it's like a dereliction of duty as an interviewer with a readership or with a listenership, not to ask certain questions that they might not want to be asked how, how, what's your approach oh i just say you may not you know if you don't want to ask, answer this question it's fine but i've got to ask you it or i say i used to say when i used to write a lot for women's mags when i was younger my editor asked me to ask me to ask this <laughs> i'm very much not from the jeremy paxman school of interviewing i like having a good conversation with somebody and trying to open them up and just be warm and share experiences i remember interviewing kylie minogue I knew she wasn't going to be terrifying, but because I loved her when I was a, was a kid. And people say, oh, she doesn't say much in interviews. You've got to re-push her. So at the beginning of the interview, I brought up the fact that she's got Welsh family. And um, we ended up talking about her nine, which is Welsh word for grandma, like a northern Welsh word for grandma, actually. She had, her, her nine was still alive. And her, she talks to me about a Welsh family. I got her to say, um, which is the long train um, station. Can you just repeat that for us, Ed? <laughs> no, no. But I got her to say that, kind of trying, let's find some shared ground if it's, you know, doesn't feel too forced. Then another side of that is because you have you know, interviewing is part of your work, reviewing is mm. another part of it, and you write in the book about so the experience you had with Abba, who you love. You had had been kind of 
on the inside, they'd employed you to write the audio tour script for their exhibition. You were trusted by the ABBA camp. And then when the new album came along, you write an honest review. Didn't really like it. And that's your job. In that moment, you have to write what you think, and it's a two-star review. So, I mean, what did, mm. did, you, did it cross your mind at any point? Oh, well, that's me. Yeah, that's it. Well, I haven't been offered any freebies to the to ABBA Voyage. <laughs> you know, maybe that's, that's why. Um, no, you've got to be honest. Yeah, the ABBA thing was tough. Um, I wrote about that very late on in kind of quite a late draft of the book, actually. You know, on Twitter, you get people ranting and, you know, you've just got to take it with a pinch of salt, really. But people find in my personal email saying, you hate joy, you hate everything. And But what I did on Twitter to everybody said, bloody typical Guardian, you hate ABBA, you don't like pop music. I just replied to everybody with a link to an article I'd written in the top 50 songs of all time for The Guardian about how, much, about how Dancing Queen was one of the greatest songs ever. I just put the link. And in that piece is my love and joy about them. Don't reply to people on Twitter, Jude. That is the answer. Yes, yeah. Don't look at your notifications. Don't reply. No, you're right. Honesty is important. Yeah, you've got to do that. Can we end on a positive note? Uh, Because it's such a positive book and such an inspiring book. And really, I encourage people to read it, to, to indeed to buy it and read it. Um, Thank you. Yeah, don't just stand don't at the bookshop book reading book it. <laughs> if you had to pick one thing to be optimistic about in terms of music and the role it can play in our lives, in our society, um, in the education of me, uh, it's, it's not all about me, I know, what would it be? Oh, there's so much. I just think this is a timeless one, actually. Just, just think about how a song can bind you to other people. You know, I write in the book about um, about how a dear friend of mine, her husband died very young and how the song Pressure Drop by Toots and the Maples was one he chose for his funeral. You know, he had terminal cancer, he knew he was dying. Um, and how every time I hear that song now, I think of Pat and I think about how wonderful he was and that gift that he gave us. My father-in-law died recently and we had his funeral the other day and the wait by the band was played at the funeral. And um, I just think about how a song that you share with somebody will just always be there (laughs) and it will carry your friendship and love and all these emotions in them. And that's true for any generation and it's going to continue. You know, my son will have songs like this with, with me or with his friends or other parts of his family. You know, music is so omnipresent now um and you know people could think it's a bit treated a little bit like wallpaper but i i tell you what really i think is wonderful this summer the fact that um running up the hill a deal with god by kate bush has taken on this sort of new life with a new generation and (laughs) number one in the charts and just as a result of a tv series called stranger things stranger things i think what's interesting about that is it just People, you know, it wouldn't be number one for weeks without people responding to the song and what it does. And the way the song is used in this series is basically this song is something she plays to connect her back with the people she loves. Totally. And that's it. And um, so that's what you can do. Well, look, uh, Jude Rogers, the book is The Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives. You're a brilliant writer. You're a Rottweiler interviewer. Uh, <laughs> And you're a great, lovely person. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, both of you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer uh, produces all the content, books all the guests, and she's supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. 
Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. Our idents were made by James Deacon. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cull. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Undaria Algae Body Oil and Undaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.